You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. Good afternoon. This is Chris Costa, the Executive Director at the International Spy Museum. Today, we're lucky enough to be joined virtually by Kristen Fontenrose, who is currently the Director of the Snow Pro. Middle East Security Initiative at the Atlanta Council. Kirsten has 20 years of experience working with national security colleagues across the Middle East and in Africa from positions within the United States Department of Defense, the Department of State, the White House, private industry, and also in the non-private sector. So this afternoon, we are doing the SpyCast remotely uh, from our respective homes because of the virus. First of all, Kirsten, are you doing okay? Yes, doing great. Thanks very much. Well, thanks for joining us today. I appreciate that uh, you're calling in because you have vast experience in a lot of respect across the community, the national security community, and also, of course, in the nonprofit world for your experience in all issues in the Middle East. And uh, we certainly got to know each other briefly, but at the National Security Council. But since we started off talking a little bit about calling in remotely because of this virus, I want to start off right off the bat talking about the COVID-19 outbreak and how it will reflect broadly, really, an impact on the Middle East itself. Are there any countries that you think will be handled better than others that will navigate this crisis better than others? And what about Iran in particular? Sure. Um, the Gulf has done a, a fairly good job because they had early scares. They, um, the for folks who came into Kuwait from Iran, about three individuals wound up with the virus. And so it kind of sent a shock around the Gulf and they cracked down pretty quickly on anything that looked like it would, it would threaten public health. So, you know, because it is state controlled media, you don't know whether you're ever getting the, the full answer. But I think they're going to be a little more resilient because they have the space to be and the resources to be. I think it's going to be a test for leadership, for the new leadership in countries like Oman and Saudi, and um, a test for resilience for political elites in places like Syria, Iran, Iraq, Lebanon, where, where those elites are under fire right now. It's going to be a test of economic stability in pretty much all countries, not just in the Middle East, and a test of, kind of public trust in their governments in the places where legitimate governments are even sitting right now, places like Egypt and Jordan. So I think, and it doesn't make the Middle East unique, but I, but it, it it's definitely in the wash at the aftermath, we're going to see who their survivors are in terms of any of these governmental systems, any of the individuals, any of the regimes, and we'll see how the public responds to the way each one of these countries has managed it. It's going to be um, it's going to be interesting. In in Iran, you know, it's a particularly precarious situation. One because they've been one of the the centers of the disease outbreak, and they've come under so much um, fire for their mismanagement of it. Two, because of the reports we've seen of mass graves, we know that Iranian state institutions are not being accurate about 
their reporting of numbers, and this is partially because they just can't test enough, and that's, un, you know, that's understandable. Everybody's facing that challenge, but it's also partially because they do not want the world to know how vast uh, the, the disease has spread, and they're worried about the panic among their own public and more criticism of the regime for its mishandling of the virus. Um, you know, their own population doesn't even trust the data coming from their government. And again, that's not something that makes them unique. But we believe that the number is about five times higher in Iran that they're reporting it. So we're thinking, you know, 10,000 dead, that kind of thing. Um, you know, the, if you looked at, at how the population responded to the Nauru's celebrations, for instance, and to the celebration of um, the Imam Qadim, who's one of the, the Shia martyrs, People came out in the streets. You know, people were openly celebrating against the regime's good advice, which they'd borrowed from international health organizations, as all governments had, uh, to stay home, to stay apart. They, it just wasn't taken seriously because the population doesn't trust when the regime says, we don't want you in the streets, but it's actually for public health reasons and not for political expediency reasons. You right. know, that, so, I mean, uh, mm -hmm, go ahead, please. No, so those are all very fair points. And... I think it will also impact power dynamics in Iran, and I think it's all interrelated, right? And you make that point. So what do you think is going to happen long-term with Iran coming on the heels of the Soleimani strike that I want to talk about in particular? But first, more broadly, what's going to happen with Iran? What are you seeing in light of how the regime is handling the coronavirus crisis on top of what just happened with Soleimani, on top of a maximum pressure campaign, on top of really uh, a population that's rested. There's a big debate about whether this regime is kind of in the, in the throes of death or whether they are hunkering down and consolidating power. And I think one takeaway that everyone agrees on is that the virus is not impacting Iran's drive toward this goal of pushing the U.S. out of the region. You know, we're seeing this uptick in attacks against U.S. forces and coalition forces in Iraq that we know are backed by Iran. And uh, we think it's because they understand that the world isn't watching now and no one's holding them accountable for this except the U.S. military. So I, I don't think we're going to see any sort of regime collapse. You know, the, the shadow organization that is the Vilayat al-Fiqih in Iran uh, is powerful and wealthy and well entrenched. Many of us look at the, the elected officials almost as just sort of these, these uh, puppets in a way. You know, they, they really don't have the opportunity to make their own opinions or, or take their own actions. You know, what kind of government tries to plan to bomb a convention in France while their own president is in the country? I mean, that just tells you how expendable the clerical regime thinks that the politically elected officials are. So I don't think they're going anywhere. In fact, one of the things I really worry about is that should the protests uh, kick up again, you know, should the people come to the street and say, not only do we have our previous grievances, but now we're really angry that you let many of us die or, or took health risks with us and kept Mahan Air flights going because this funds IRGC business transactions. We, we, we're holding you responsible for coming to the streets and complaining. If I'm the regime, I'm going to say, got it. We really care. We're listening. And so what we're going to do is replace the president, who you don't like, and we're going to replace the supreme leader, who is, you know, elderly and, and uh, fragile health-wise anyway, and, you know, currently under a lockdown outside of, um, of Tehran for his own health, um, and say, uh, you know, these, these guys, we're going we're gonna to take them down, we're going to replace them with other people with fresh faces and make the protesters happy. And then we get somebody who is... A, a ultra hardline proxy in the president's spot. They would love an excuse to get rid of Rouhani. And we get a supreme leader who has 40 more years under his belt because he's younger uh, th than the current supreme leader. You know, if it came to that, if the Guardian Council agreed to it. So I really don't see anything in the aftermath of this uh, working in the favor of an actual regime collapse or regime fall. I think they're at the best. We might find a, a small window when there's kind of a crisis of legitimacy if, let's say, the Supreme Leader were to pass away from the virus or of other natural causes. Um, before the, the Guardian Council was able to put somebody in place, right now you have um, Khamenei's own son kind of in command and control. And if he and his best buddy 
who is the IRGC Intel chief, decide we like this command and control, we want to stay here, you could see a, a battle within the clerical establishment. And if you if if that gives the international community a little tiny window to weigh in, that might be the one time you'd have to say, hey, we'd like to see the voice of these protesters given some thought in the uh, the formation of, of a new government. It's it's so, it's not likely to happen, but um, but it is maybe the one chance. So that is certainly a sober viewpoint of kind of where we are with Iran. Let's dial back a little bit and let's take the Soleimani strike for, for a moment. Was that a proportionate response by the United States in your view? And that clearly escalated tensions, but there was also the possibility along with a maximum pressure campaign by the United States and sanctions that again, a, Iran is going to be in a position with all of these things happening to come to the table. Maybe not now, but down the line. So from what you just said, that's not my sense. And then we'll move on with some other things. But I'd like to hear your your thoughts on that. Yeah, I don't think any of this is, is bringing Iran to the table. I think we we miscalculate the way that they make their make their foreign policy decisions and we're, we're completely ignoring the fact that regime survival is the primary objective in tehran right now so with, with soleimani you know i wouldn't even say it's, it matters that it was proportional because to me as someone who watched soleimani for much of a career and had watched these these kinds of plans kind of come and go and be up for discussion and is it the right time it was never a question of whether he was a valid target the man was a valid target the question was, is now the right time? What will the repercussions right. be? So, you right. know, the, in my opinion, Iran and Iraq gave us this opportunity. They handed us Soleimani. They put him in our laps to strike because they lined up all of our authorities. If they had chosen not, if the proxies, not Iraq, the country, if the proxies responding to Tehran had, had chosen not to strike our base, on December 27th that is shared with Iraqi forces and with international forces, we would not have had the authorities to strike. You know, I mean, we did because everything lined up and we knew he wouldn't be in some place where there would be a lot of civilian casualties. It was too good of an opportunity to pass up as callous as that sounds. You know, we had international law behind us um, because the host country was not willing or able to respond in our behalf. We had domestic law behind us because it was responding to a direct strike on US citizens in a foreign country. You know, we, we had Title X authorities. Everything was in place. And he was with Mohandas, who was also a valid target. And he wasn't yep. in a schoolyard or in a hospital or something like that. So I think no matter what, if it, that strike is what gave us the right to do it, kind of handed us this window. And it didn't matter if it was proportional. We, this was something we've been waiting to do for quite some time. I mean, I really hate quoting Sun Tzu because I feel like it's overdone in every single slide deck that every major ever drafts but i will say right you know but but all of us have it drilled into our heads at some point even if we roll our eyes at the at its ubiquity now that he, you know he did say you don't hit the cities you hit the strategy like don't attack the cities attack the strategy and i thought of that immediately when we talked about the Suleimani strike because he was the strategy i mean it was resident in his head and in his cult of personality so you right. it, you think it was taking a capability off the table long term, even if in the short term, it means we're dealing with an uptick in violence. So I think it's a it's a situation to say, is the U.S. safer now? Well, not now, but I do think that the, the world is safer without him in the long term. Um, and, it, you know, that's that's debated by many a person, but the, I really stick with it. The, I think the one question is, why didn't we use Title 50 authorities? Um, and, you know, you probably have opinions on that that, you, that go far beyond mine. But um, the way I see it, that would have been perhaps the, a better way to go about this cleanly, but it would not have been something we could then say was proportional because it would not have been a DOD response to attack on DOD. So yeah. um, I mean, just throw that without out. getting into the, any technical details of the authorities, I would just say that I think we own, we, the United States in this case, on the strike, and I think it it wasn't just taking off a strategist that's part of the IRGC Quds Force and leading the Quds Force, but also leading the strategy, the point that you make. At the same time, I, I do believe that uh, in this case, 
we we also went after somebody that was involved with current attack planning. But most importantly, there's a higher level of communication. So I'm glad we, as the United States in this case, owned the strike and it was not some kind of different authority and denied. I think it was just an opportunity um, that was presented itself while militia movements were, who were Iranian backed, were operating against uh, US service members and civilians on the ground in Iraq. I just think it was, it was opportune, the point that you make, and I agree. So just to continue on, so we, we can move on from Iran, Talk a little bit about Iran and Iraq, or I'm sorry, Iraq. Just last week, uh, there was another strike against uh, a militia organization. It might have got lost in the coronavirus reporting, but DOD took another strike against a Iranian-backed militia on the ground in Iraq. This is a consequence of this continuing tit for tat that goes back to Suleimani. So. Can you tease that out a little bit? Sure. You know, my personal opinion is that Iran's foreign policy toward the U.S. is very non-strategic, and, and that's being borne out in Iraq and, unfortunately, on the back of Iraqis. Um, I think they're missing an opportunity to get what they want from the U.S. You know, they say they their, their objective is to push the U.S. from the region, and I think the fastest way to do that would be to lay low and leave the U.S. alone because this president is inclined to, to withdraw. He's inclined to bring troops home during an election year. And if, if there were not reason for the troops to be in Iraq to defend their mission there, to defend interests and allies, then we'd be home. You know, I mean, by, by threatening him with a humiliating retreat, if he leaves under the fire of rockets, then you delay what he would naturally want to do. So if Iran just said, hey, proxies, chill for a while, um, the U.S. would pull out, and I'm not, that would be bad for Iraq because, of course, then they would they would come back in full force, and we'd probably see a Colombian cartel situation with them running the country like a mafia. But just to mix metaphors, there all over the place. But Iran is not seeing it that way, and so there's this kind of battle of machismo between between the two leaders. Um, the president can't pull out now, and Iran is the reason. So even though Iraqi public opinion says we don't really love you here, and even though the president, frankly, could say, hey, look, the Iraqis told us to leave, and this is the wish of a sovereign nation. So we're coming home, respecting that wish. We're bringing troops home, so everyone rally around me and elect me again for this. And then when ISIS resurges and the militias start to run, run the country, and there's a civil war that none of the Iraqis are aligned with or believe in or want, the blame falls on Iran and the Iraqi parliament that evicted the U.S. You know, I, I think I think the U.S. could have this sort of graceful, absolved exit, and Iran could have U.S. exit from the region if they just calm down. Um, but instead, we are seeing this. And my concern is that we're we're moving closer and closer to a a, a broader conflict. Um, I think these these rocket attacks are meant to instigate something bigger. Well, again, while the world isn't watching. And unfortunately, our options are limited. We have put on about every sanction it's possible to put on. We don't have a lot of tools between sanctions and kinetics in the U.S. toolkit. And the kinetics that we've chosen to do so far, these limited direct strikes, have not proved to be a deterrent. So if you can't deter with that and your people are in harm's way, what do you do? Do you ramp up the fight? How do you send a strong signal? You know, as far as I see it, there there are only a couple of options. There's just kind of hunker down and wait it out and keep the, the military training mission on pause and uh, keep the troops locked into larger, more more uh, protected bases. You can go out and kind of lay a smackdown, like really come down hard on Qatab, Hezbollah, AAH, some of the groups, HAN. Um, you, could, you could do a combination, you know, you could do a smackdown and then a drawdown. You can come in hard, you know, and then go home. I mean, you know, the way I put it in something, just lob the heads off of all of the militias at their bases and then drop the mic and leave. This, none of these are really good options. I mean, all of these 
leave Iran in control and leave it with access essentially all the way to the Mediterranean because it will control well, governments would, in Iran. If, if I could, so I want to go back to something you said. So you talk about, uh, you know, pulling out and the implications you mentioned briefly on ISIS. This goes back to a criticism of previous administration, the previous administration, a precipitous withdrawal from Iraq that created a vacuum, ISIS filled that vacuum, Iraqi security forces weren't able to counter ISIS that took a lot of people by surprise in places like Mosul. So again, is history going to repeat itself? Uh, I mean, I understand the sensibilities to want to pull forces out of the Middle East. We have other problems in the world. We're not going to talk about North Korea today, but at the same time, this balancing game of making sure that we don't have to counter a resurgent ISIS uh, down the line again in, uh, you know, from Iraq. I, I just think it's an endless problem. And that brings us to our relations with, with the Iraqi government today. Can you just talk a little bit about Al-Zerfi and kind of the position he's in and kind of uh, get to the point that I just made, the idea of a withdrawal and some of the vacuums and, again, this kind of 360-degree cycle that we seem to be in with, with Iraq in particular. Sure. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think any of us who've been doing this for a while would be naive to say that ISIS is going to go away just because they're... Um, not particularly active at the moment in certain theaters. I mean, we know very well that that just gives you time to plan. <laughs> so w with regard to Al-Zerfi, Adnan Al-Zerfi, who is the nominee for prime minister in Iraq, he's probably not going to make it through approval. And, and frankly, by the end of this week, we may even know something. But because the prime minister slot in Iraq is designated to a Shia, the Shia parties have to agree on a nominee. And there's not agreement. So the, the Shia parties that are aligned with Iran-backed militias do not support him because he is perceived as being anti-Iranian influence. He's, he's not essentially pro-American, which some people like to say. I mean, he has some beef with the U.S. also based on personal experiences he's had. But he is more pro-American than what we've seen come forward previously. So he's, he's honestly not going to get through the approval process there. I mean, I think that the international community should be pressuring Iran to stay out of this debate and let Iraqis make their own decisions and make it clear to the Iraqi people that they have a voice in this, that they can put pressure on their own parties to make sure that somebody who represents their views, you know, comes in. Isn't that what the, excuse me, I, I just want to interject and ask a, to that point, the Iraqi population, at the end of the day, don't they want to be a sovereign nation that isn't accused of being driven down by Iranian influence? Don't they want to make their own decision about the future of Iraq? My take, Iraqi people, the Iraqis that I've known, is they're a very proud people, and they, they want to be respected and thought of as their own nation and they have a lot of pride is there ever going to get to a point where the iraqi people are going to rise up against that malign influence from iran oh i completely agree you know the protests have tried and when i talk to um iraqis of all ages there's a mixed opinion on whether the protests will be effective or not but the things people do agree on are do not politicize these protests because if you bring these these folks who are kind of canaries in a coal mine they're they're identifying the problem and you and you put them into the political system that's really corrupt and kind of broken and infused with Iranian influence then they don't have a chance they'll be suppressed um, the other point that they make is that if you cut the heads off of all the ministries in Iraq, for instance, and replace them with new leadership, that still doesn't fix the problem. You have this giant bureaucracy of civil servants uh, who benefited from this system that kind of rewards nepotism and rewards graft. And unless you restructure that, there's kind of there's no hope of any sort of reform getting through. One former Iraqi minister who I have a lot of respect for because he's he's has a lot of experience kind of looking back says that it's kind of like uh, get it, you know, when you make repairs on a car, if you just paint the body, the car still won't work. You've got to go in and jigger with the engine. So I think if, if the international community continues to, for instance, 
provide assistance funding to an Iraqi system that will steal it, we're not going to get anywhere. If we just kind of replace the heads of these snakes without rebuilding the snakes, then <laughs> that's an interesting metaphor, then we're not going to get anywhere. So the, I, I think Iraq has a great opportunity because they have a very educated population that's very external looking. They have years of experience, but what they don't have is a lot of time in functioning bureaucracy. You know, Saddam cultivated this patronage system where everyone kind of went to him for permission to spend a dime and their budgets were all meted out um, based on what he gave them authority to do. You know, the, the budget process was a joke for the most part. So and there's a lot of uh, rebuilding that needs to happen kind of from the ground up. And that's a big lift And who's responsible for it and who funds it. And isn't it easier for the UN just to send in a couple of advisors who then have a wool pulled over their eyes by the bureaucrats who know how it works? You know, we've done this poorly before. So there really does need to be a, a new approach. Um, but, but I do think that there's optimism. You know, if it were some other countries, I might say, <laughs> forget it. They're just not tooled for this. We're going to be in this position for a long time. Um, but I, th I think there's, there's potential for Iraq. And certainly Iraqis want that, right? And isn't that the most important part, the will? The, the, the interesting thing is in Iraq, if you think about who needs to be at the table to make changes, to make real implementation of reform, there's a difference between those with power to do it and those with the will to do it. And right now, no group has both. So it will force the forming of some kinds of political coalitions that will be very different than the political coalitions that are sectarian that we see now. So it may mean they have to reconsider the entire Mahasasa system that's, you know, the, the um, religiously based apuary, um, allotment of uh, political seats. We'll be right back after this. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contain threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. Right, so also to your point, Iraq is a relatively new state under a post, you know, Hussein rule. So it's only been, what, less than two decades that they've been managing a, a state system and fighting against ISIS and remnants of Al-Qaeda. I mean, it's been really mind-numbing when you think how much the state's been, been through. So I think you make some excellent points, and that was a great um articulation of kind of the, the position that Iraq's in. So I want to switch gears a little bit. You also wrote a piece, an excellent piece, um, for the Atlantic Council talking about the Muslim Brotherhood. Could you kind of offer your thesis and tell us where we are with, with kind of the U.S. position on the Muslim Brotherhood, what the United States wanted to do, and kind of how it's been a self-correcting problem, if I understood your thesis and, and kind of your conclusion of your paper. You can kind of walk us through that. Sure, so what was interesting was that in this administration, there is a lot of um, discussion about whether or not political Islam poses a threat to US interests. Uh, on the one hand, it is the possibly the one form of democracy that we're seeing in the region. Um, on the other hand, however, the, the 
potential for a, a religiously derived political system to suppress certain sectors of the population is pretty realistic. So the Emiratis and the Egyptians came to the U.S. administration early and said, we really think this is a problem. And if you don't act against it, you're going to see political Islam all across the region. And as the administrations went forward in the years past, they came back again with the same argument, but with new examples saying, hey, look at what we're looking at in Sudan. Look at what we're looking at in Libya. And you're already going to have trouble in Morocco. In Tunisia, they're already in power. In Algeria, they could present a challenge and there's a new fragile government. So you've got all of these opportunities for political Islamist groups under different banners, but united by, by one kind of viewpoint to form a coalition across this region blocking you from, from the rest of Africa and creating a lot of problems for NATO in the Southern Med. So the president listens to this and says, okay, you know, that's, that's a serious consideration. I'll need to know more. But when the, when the effort was put to the NSC to look into designating the Brotherhood again, we all kind of, you know, everyone rolled their eyes because we've been through this before. And at no point has it ever met the legal threshold. You have to prove that they're responsible for a terrorist incident within the last two or three years. We can't prove that right now. Um, you know, there are a couple, and you know, Chris, my gosh, you know, that we've tried this many times over the last couple of decades, and we're, we're just not getting there. And what place does America have really to say that we won't give space for a democratic movement to at least prove whether it's for good or for evil? Uh, so, Thomas. Sorry, Islamist no, organization, by, by definition, it's about change at the ballot box. Others might argue against that point, but fundamentally, it's, it's about changing uh, the way countries are, are, are governed, and um, Sharia law would, would uh, be very much a part of the fabric of, of the Muslim Brotherhood movement, but at the end of the day, it is the will of the people in some of these countries. Is that fair to say? Do you, do you agree with that, uh, that statement? I do, and I'll be honest, I have my own concerns about it. I mean, I think that it would have to be watched very closely, but when you look at places like Tunisia, where it hasn't been a problem, or Jordan, where they've essentially co-opted brotherhood-aligned political parties into their system with the idea that you, know, you, keep, you keep them close to the court and they don't act out, then um, I think we have some examples of how it could be part of a functioning, you know, a, a functioning political system and, and not a front for violence or oppression of women or any of the things that we worry about. Um, I mean, I, I don't think even, I don't think that when the Emiratis and the Egyptians came to the administration and said, we really see this as a problem, that they were, that they were being anything but, but honest and, and well-intended, truly. I think President Sisi, frankly, was just trying to send a message to Qatar and Turkey. And I think that the Emirates, uh, Mohammed bin Zayed there, has been concerned about the Brotherhood for a long time. He has experience from youth. And so, you know, they're not, they're not making these, these fears up. It's, it's just that as the U.S., we're probably the last folks they should be talking to about tying down or designating a democratic movement, at least right now. I mean, should the Brotherhood do something, you know, that is terrorist activity, according to our legal definitions, well, then by all means, we will, we will, <laughs> they will see the wrath of God. But yep. right now, we just couldn't get there. And so within the NSC, this was kind of a debate between the political um, folks who wanted this to happen and the career folks who have been down this road before and who may even agree with the fact that the Brotherhood is not an ideal partner, but just say, hey, we, we know we can't get to the threshold. This is always a big time suck and a manpower suck and a resource suck and we're not going to get there yet. So don't make us do this. You know, um, no. I mean, some of these countries that, that have affiliations, like I mentioned, like Jordan and Tunisia and Qatar, they, uh, they think that, that giving them a little bit of a voice, it's kind of a release valve and it prevents them from having greater domestic unrest than they would. Uh, it also makes sure that these folks don't act against them. Um, within their own territories, you know, they, because they feel like they have a little bit of say and a little bit of protection, a little bit of room to move. 
So I think that's why we see them either co-opting or, or not condemning. I mean, arguments can be made that Qatar specifically has advanced Brotherhood-aligned movements in places where they could be a threat to a regime. And understandably, that is a danger and that is an, kind of an existential threat to places like Saudi Arabia and the UAE. So the dispute between those two, I don't think is unfounded. But according to what we watch, you know, we don't collect on our partners to the same extent that we collect on everybody else. And when it comes to the Brotherhood and Qatar, the last time we really saw anything where related to them trying to advance the group at the detriment of, an, of a sitting government was like 2014, maybe before, but you know, where we've, any, where we've seen them kind of do anything that we would go, uh, we're not comfortable with that. That doesn't mean they or anyone else is not doing it. It just means we're not collecting on it. And so if these governments that want us to take action um, can bring us evidence of it, that's fine. But they always tell us, oh, we can't do it because of TTPs or we can't do it because, you know, tear lines, guys, bring us tear lines. And they don't. So all we can say is, I'm sorry, we we don't have room or space as a democratic government to act against them uh, until you bring us something that proves that they will meet our legal definition. So Qatar in particular, one of the major grievances was the Muslim Brotherhood, but that wasn't all. Then there was a significant, in, I'll understate it, squabble among neighbors. Can you talk about that? that tension in the aftermath of uh, President's travel to Saudi Arabia, and which by all accounts went very well. He went to Saudi Arabia, uh, the President went to Israel, and if I recall, he also went to uh, Italy, to the Vatican. And in the aftermath of that, of course, uh, there was all of a sudden an outbreak, a squabble in the neighborhood, and Qatar was on the receiving end of pressure and uh, a, a vibrant disinformation campaign. And you and I talked about that a little bit earlier, so I'd like to tease that out as well. What was that campaign all about? Where is it now? And could you kind of just uh, put a little flesh on that, as we say? Sure, the, the rift and the disinformation campaign are going strong. Uh, and when I was at the NSC, because I heard complaints from both sides of the rift argument, from Qatar on one side, the UAE, Saudi, Egypt, and Bahrain on the other side, I asked um, the, the arm of the U.S. government that tracks media and analyzes it to do a study for two weeks of all of the media coming out of the state-owned enterprises in all five countries and tell me where any of the media had crossed U.S. Mm -hmm press lines. So where any of these media had advocated for overthrow of governments, given a platform to terrorist voices, these kinds of things, and let me know. And that we would, then we could take action. Then we could go to those governments and say, this is a problem for us. Well, what they came back with was this great study that said, look, none of them are actually crossing these red lines for the U.S., but all of them to a one are spreading disinformation, creating false platforms, um, creating fa false stories about leadership and others, uh, maligning, you know, it was, it was rampant and it still is. The, the fake news, to use a phrase that, you know, America loves, is common. I mean, it's just all over their pages. It's almost funny. Like, if you know what you're, you know, if you know to, what to look for, it cracks you up. But if you're just a person sitting in your country, all you consume is what the government is giving you, it's very dangerous because it creates a generation now of people who feel very divided and the Gulf is not a big place. It'd be like Rhode Island hating Delaware. Something. You know, I mean, you can't, you can't have in that kind of space people who feel diametrically opposed to one another to the point where it could be violent. And, and it's really at that, it's at that level. I mean, you saw talk probably at one point about Saudi Arabia potentially building a toxic waste trench between them and Qatar. It's laughable until you find out that there was actually an RFP out for engineering firms to build a trench. You know, was that a brilliant military deception campaign on the part of Saudi, or was that you know was that serious? Um, in which case, it's it's absolutely intolerable. So, all 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 of these countries need to knock it off in terms of the disinformation campaigns because they're going to get themselves to a point where their children no longer can be brought back from that. You know, the older generation says, someday this will pass, and if only that side will do the following, we'll get over it, we're all friends, we're all cousins, we all love each other, we're intermarried. That's the truth. 
But this next generation who's coming up and this mired in this disinformation war doesn't see that. And so then the U.S. hosts our military men and women on bases in these countries. And right across the border, you've got people who vehemently dislike your hosts. And that creates a security risk for us. You know, so do we continue to place people out there where there are going to be generations of um, of people who, who wish ill on the folks that are 100 kilometers away? How does that make sense for us? So I think, you know, something the Gulf needs to consider is that in their pleas to the U.S. to stay in place and assist them with securing their own region, they need to think about how they're creating a less secure region through their own media. So what about the idea that uh, Qatar has managed to survive this onslaught for how long has it gone on now? Almost two years. Uh, I've lost track of time. But can this go on indefinitely? They seem as a state to have adapted to the pressure that's been placed on them and embargoes by their, their neighbors. How does this end then? They have survived and, uh, you know, to their credit, and maybe it's a lesson for many other countries in things like diversification. Um, they've also been fairly humble about it. You know, you haven't seen them um, being braggadocious, which I think is smart because I think the only way for them to stay on the good side against the power machines on the opposite side is to be humble um, and to play the victim, which I think they've done well. Now, again, this doesn't mean that there's there's no grounds for complaint on the part of the of the quartet. Um, I think both sides have a lot to to move toward the center on this. Um, so, you know, Qatar has offered at one point to disassociate from the Brotherhood. And that's a great offer. And, and if the, the quartet right. would take them up on that, then we'd really get somewhere. I think it's really big of Qatar to even to even float that. Um, the quartet says, well, how do we know? How do we verify? And, you know, that's the that's the issue with any sort of confidence building measure in any conflict. How do you verify that the other side is sticking to its commitment? Uh, I mean, and all we can tell the quartet is you have the international community now. You know, in your previous arrangements on things like counterterrorism with Qatar, where you felt like they did not live up to their commitments, the U.S. wasn't at the table. Europe wasn't, wasn't at the table. Um, so now take advantage of the fact that we all care and we can help with that. Uh, I, I do think there's 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 good to come of this. I think um, it doesn't mean that the leaders need to be like kissing on TV and making up um, in any way that costs any of them face, but they could they could begin with technical answers, um, allowing families to cross borders, opening up airspace, lifting blockades, you know, and kind of quietly reengage if if that's what they need to do. So there's no humiliation in it. That's fine. I mean. The international community just wants to see this over. I don't think there's anyone except Iran who benefits from the Gulf being divided. So unless their their strategy is strengthening Iran's arm and ability to create wedges within our own neighborhood, then what's what's the good being done? So your latter point is a great transition to Saudi Arabia. But before we do that, just define for our listeners the quartet. That is who now? That is Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Bahrain, and Egypt. Okay, thank you for that. And Saudi Arabia. So mm -hmm. offline the other day, you and I had a discussion, and I told you when I left the administration in January of 2018, I was very optimistic at what I had observed with Saudi Arabia, the trajectory it was on as a, as a state, uh, some of the uh, social changes that were breaking out as a result of MBS. And I was optimistic. And then to Shoji. So you were at the National Security Council when that broke. So can you talk us through what that was like? Uh, and additionally, you've written a piece on Saud al-Khani. Uh, talk to us about the, the impact of of what's happened with him recently. Sure. You know, Saad Katani is, is, I swear to God, I have dreams about the guy. Um, we don't know each other. And uh, I think if he ever showed up, it would mean my life was in danger. But I really do think he is the crux of some of the very poor decisions Saudi has made in the last few years. 
and that includes, in my opinion, the Khashoggi issue. Um, he was behind the decision to uh, kidnap Hariri. He's behind the decision to alienate the Canadians at one point for their criticism over Saudi's imprisonment of female activists. He ran the interrogations at the Ritz. He advocated at one point for targeting civilians in Yemen because he thought then the Houthi population would blame their leadership for drawing the strikes. I mean, just whack. Mm -hmm. You know, and then and then he was behind this uh, this campaign to curtail the voices of journalists around the world, whether or not that was in co-opting them by bringing them back to Saudi and shutting them up and paying them off and giving them houses, or whether it was something like we saw with Jamal. And I do think that if you remove him from the decision-making circle, that you get better decisions. It's my personal opinion that a lot of the, the advisors to Mohammed bin Salman really aren't comfortable with the guy um, and that they see that he's a bad influence. Um, no one fully understands why they're best friends, but I mean, you know, hey, we all have people we trust more than others we feel closely bonded with. So it's, you know, whatever the human nature piece is that draws Mohammed bin Salman to Saul Qatani, uh, none of us can really can really get to the bottom of. He's not, a, you know, he's not a childhood friend. He's not royal. They weren't raised together. They didn't go to school together in the same way. But the Saad has proved to be helpful. You know, he designed an app that a lot of the Saudis use to to communicate with each other that's not used elsewhere. He's a yes man. He's really good with social media. He was behind the disinformation campaign um, focused on Qatar. I mean, name a bad decision. This guy's touched it. Or so let's go back to two bad decisions, or arguably bad decisions, certainly decisions that were controversial. You mentioned the Ritz. We want to define for our listeners what happened at the Ritz, and also you talked about Harare from Lebanon. Can you just very quickly talk about those two uh, issues that played out on the ground in Saudi Arabia? Sure. The, the Ritz interrogations were um, arrests and detainments of wealthy Saudi individuals who were then uh, asked to sign over some of their personal wealth to the state coffers. A very interesting way to, you know, increase your, your budget flow. Um, the Saudi government said, hey, look, these guys came by this money in illegal ways. So all we're doing is taking back what should have been paid to the state. Um, most of them did pay, many of them are out, not all of them are out. Uh, and we've seen new arrests and detentions on charges of corruption and the like recently that may or may not be true, and there's probably a little bit of each. Um, so, you know, and these all took place in the Ritz, and the Ritz turned into this kind of golden cage where they lived in some comfort, but with no freedom, and certainly no um, idea what was going to happen next. Uh, the, maybe it was a deterrent, you know, maybe others would be thinking about taking their money outside the kingdom or making money off of contracts illegally or some such would learn from this. But, you know, find me a, a royal in a, in a country that allows for public officials to own private companies that then contract to their government who doesn't do this. It's, it's a common, common practice around the world, not even just in Saudi, not even just in the Gulf. And it's, it, it's not great, but it happens. The, the kidnapping of Hariri in Lebanon was, I mean, we call it a kidnapping and it, it, it's not like they snatched him off the street, but they essentially called him to Riyadh and gave him kind of a dressing down. Like, here's what you need to be doing. And I think this was a reflection of Saudi's frustration with Iran's influence over the Lebanese government, a frustration shared by all of the partners and allies um, of, of Saudi, to be honest. But this wasn't the way to do it. I mean, you know, you don't um, you don't humiliate a politician and essentially make it impossible for him to have a political future uh, by doing something like that. And and you don't make him look like he's a puppet or a puppy. And and they did that. And it, it kind of it was shocking because it's just not diplomacy. Um, and it, this is the kind of decision that being these kind of hand handed, a little bit dramatic, kind of made at 3 a.m., you know, smoking shisha with a text message to inaugurate a decision that's coming out of Saudi with the influence of people like Saad Qatani um, and the way that he, he hampers the voices of other wise advisors. There are people in Saudi that have been wonderful partners to the world 
as advisors. And there are youth um, coming up who are very similar. I mean, Khalid bin Salman, Mohammed bin Salman's brother, from my personal interactions with him, I think the guy's great. I think he's very sane. Are you talking about the ambassador? The ambassador, yes. You know, when he first started, he would come with kind of a list of talking points, and he'd read off the talking points, and he seemed very young. But yep. by the end of his time, he was very effective, and I think his advice was good, and I think his time in Washington really helped him to be able to advise his brother on how decisions are made here, what will buy and what will won't. I, I, I imagine these realistic views of them sitting in um, – you know, on low couches and him saying, I just really don't think Washington's going to take to that. Or I really don't think that's going to be pulled off. They're going to see through this. I mean, you know, because he, he gets us a little more than than his his crown prince brother does. And there are there are other wise folks who've been survivors in the Saudi political system who are still there. People like Mossad Aleban, who is their essentially their national security advisor and has lived through several kings and he's not royal. He's just wise. Now, granted, he probably doesn't challenge much either. That's how you survive. But we found him to be a, a really strong interlocutor and very rational. Um, m m other folks, too. You know, Saudi has, has a cadre of, of really sharp technocrats as well. And, um, and people like Adel El-Jaber, who, frankly, I think was, was mis misused. I think they turned him into kind of the Colin Powell of Saudi by taking someone they knew had public trust, putting him out in front and forcing him to say things that weren't true um, about the Jamal issue. And so uh, I think I think there's Saudi has a lot of potential because the visions are something that the U.S. can get behind. But they mm -hmm. keep derailing themselves with with yeah. these, these other little ventures. And yeah, absolutely self-inflicted. And it's crashed their credibility. So now their two levers really are defense procurement and energy. You know, those are the kind of the two ways they have to to get other countries to do anything they want. Otherwise, they've lost they've lost kind of the trust that um, King Salman had. You know, the whole region had these wise, wise leaders for a long time, these older gentlemen and um these these younger leaders don't have that public trust yet from the world community, and if you if you don't take that first space when you're in power and uh, and use it to prove yourself, then there's no coming back from that. So that's really excellent analysis, and and again, I I talked to MBS's brother, the ambassador, when he was here, and I literally told him it was my personal view that Saudi Arabia was on. A good trajectory. There was some excellent progressive change that I was seeing. What was it planned 2030 looked very, very, very promising to me. So again, maybe I was misguided in my thoughts or maybe just a confluence of events. You you talked about some of those events, you know, the Golden Cage Rift, Khashoggi, along with Harari, all those things happened, and I was mildly embarrassed that my analysis was off, or maybe it was just predictable. These things happen in the Middle East. But it begs the question, and this is the, the final question on Saudi Arabia, and then we're going to wrap up uh, just for the sake of time, but this has been fascinating. Can we ever expect progressive change from Saudi Arabia? Are you optimistic on those points? I'm optimistic because I think that the youth bulge in Saudi wants this. We know they are really behind these reforms. Um, we know that there is a kind of a religious right sector that is incredibly opposed to them. Um, I remember when when the Canadian issue happened and Saudi tried to sever its relationships with, with Canada, and we thought this was really an overreaction. And I called the Saudis and said, what are you doing? You're punching a teddy bear. Like, the world loves Canada. What are you thinking? We can't stand by you. We're going to have to stand with Canada if this becomes a thing. So what are you doing? And, um, and they said, hey, look, here's the deal. Uh, the way that Canada put those statements out there made it look like they were chastising us. Our, um, and the religious right in country used that to put out statements saying that we are the regime, you know, the, the, the royal family and the government in Saudi are puppets of the West. 
And we had to do something that made it really clear that that's not the case. So don't worry, we're gonna make friends with Canada, everything's gonna be fine, but we had to do this for domestic reasons. And whether that's true or not, I actually think it's kind of a good argument. Um, so I, I, I think they've got, um, they've got a tough ride because that part of the, of the population that is kind of on the right or side of religion is such a fundamental part of the foundation of the country. You know, when the country was founded by a political family and a religious alliance, um, you can't just dismiss them the way that you might be able to in other countries or say, well, they don't, you just can't. They're part of the, the country's identity. So they have to be given some kind of voice. But you've also got in this youth bulge a bunch of folks who really support Mohammed bin Salman's reform initiatives. Um, after Jamal, I put out an, a, a, you know, a request for information on public opinion about support for, for the crown prince. And what we found was that they rallied behind Mohammed bin Salman. Um, and anytime leaders in the US, like when Lindsey Graham was playing bad cop, which I thought was frankly great, I think it was important for Saudi to hear a, a prominent uh -huh. Republican say this is not okay. Um, but when he did that in Saudi, we saw the, the youth support for Mohammed bin Salman rise. So I thought, okay, that's not going to be the way to approach this then, you know, that's not going to be the tack to take. So I, I do think that there's space, it just means there's, they're going to have to roll them out probably more slowly than Mohammed bin Salman and the youth would like, and they're going to need a lot of help. I mean, if countries are going to be critical, they need to be constructively critical, help them, help them get to a place where they can help them make the right reforms. Um, if movie theaters aren't the answer, you know, fine, go in and show them what, what is the answer, education for for girls in remote areas or whatever it is. You know, I mean, come in with, with, with good ideas. The problem I see in the immediate term is, um, is with the way that they've looked at the accounting of Vision 2030. This really smart um, economist, Hanif and Dekli, who I always call on to set me straight on things, told me that the way that the budget has been done, one of the, one of the problems is that when they look at Saudiization, kind of, replacing third country national uh, workers in the country with Saudis. We all know about the cultural problem that there are just jobs Saudis don't wanna do, but beyond that, the equation is a one for one exchange, you know, one Indian or one fill in the blank for one Saudi. And unfortunately it's not a one for one. With, with one cost unit for a third country, you get two cost units of productivity. And with when you sub in a Saudi who hasn't had to work and has a, has a kind of a, 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 you know, this feeling of exceptionalism, you get a point, you get a 2.0 cost unit to a 1.0 productivity, for instance. And it's not that Saudis aren't as capable or aren't as smart, they just haven't had to work. And so they're not as familiar with like a, what a work day looks like. So that at the very, very tactical level, you wind up with, with financial ruin by, you know, 2030 instead of, instead of a vision because you just can't afford to make the changes that are that are being asked for. So in other words, some of the Saudi behaviors really have set them back a little bit, but they're still on on a path to to achieve some of their objectives that they're setting out to do, I think. Would you agree I think with they, that? I think they are. Yeah, I think they are. I mean, obviously, these these oil price wars and things like that, you know, this is going to impact their ability to finance a lot of this. And I think some uh -huh. of the some of the leverage they've thought they'd have around the world that requires significant resources may be limited because they won't have the money to back it up with. Other countries don't either. Um, but, it, but it definitely will impact how maybe Vision 2030 becomes Vision 2050 and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but I do think that the role for all of our countries on the other sides of the water is to play in helping them decide where they should focus first since they're not gonna be able to do it all at once financially. So we just covered an awful lot of ground, and uh, from Iran to Saudi Arabia to Qatar, uh, we talked about the Middle East, and there's an election coming up here in the United States in November. Post-election, if someone said to you, what should our priorities be for, for the Middle East uh, for the next four years? And you inevitably will be asked that question by some people. So. What would your answer be? I think a lot of our priorities have not changed. Um, and I think if you look at sort of the past several administrations and you look at the national defense strategies or the national security strategies, 
you come out with some things that that are maintained and they are things like ensuring that terrorism does not have free space to rule or and reign they are things like um, strengthening the capabilities of our partners uh, so i think a lot of those will continue i mean Right now, we're seeing kind of these two paradoxical objectives in the Middle East. You know, on the one hand, reduce our footprint and resources in the Middle East. On the other hand, stay the preferred partner as opposed to Russia or China of these partners in the Middle East. Those are tough, but I don't think those are um, mutually exclusive. And I don't think that they will necessarily change under a democratic administration if the election um, is to bring in somebody new. I think that some of those things will 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 be sustained. You know. President Trump has made it clear that he wants to get out of conflicts in the Middle East. And I think any Democrat who comes in is going to have the exact same opinion on that particular scenario. Um, all the, the candidates I've watched had made those promises in their stump statements about, you know, getting us out of the Middle East, getting us out of conflicts. And, you know, I think it's because we have a war weary electorate and we've got a war drained budget and that's being recognized. So I think that our priorities there will stay secure the flow of energy and shipping lanes as they always have. They will stay, make sure there's no space for terrorism, consolidate the CT gains. They will stay, um, ensure our partners have self-sufficient capability to protect themselves, which we have not achieved yet, but it's not really the fault of any particular administration. It's still a worthwhile goal for any administration to work toward. Um, I, I just, I just, I think that what we will see is if, if we have a, a Democrat not, um, president, we will probably see some tough times for some of our particular partners. I think there will be more room um, for punishing legislation aimed at Saudi Arabia, whether that's limiting visas for Ramco people, whether it's limiting sales of F-35s or F-16 parts, whether it's um, Yemen related, um, whether it's other weapon sales, you know, whatever it is, I think we'll see efforts to I mean, they could block them from entry into our energy sector, like keep them out of LNG deals if they haven't signed them by then or things like that. So I think that would be the the one big change would be some of the things that this administration has kept at bay would be would come back again in full force. Well, you just mentioned Yemen. We'll have to do another podcast because that's okay. a whole subject in and of <laughs> itself, right? Uh, yes. And you also told us that Al Qatani uh, invades your sleep cycle. What else keeps you up at night? You're a former national security professional. You've got to have some other concerns that we didn't talk about, or maybe we did. What keeps you up at night? Oh, there are there are a couple things. Um, one is the future of global energy financing. I think that we are moving toward a place where there will be additional restrictions like those we just saw in Europe on what kinds of loans governments or you know um, governments will allow banks to make to the energy sector. So whether it's Europe draws a, a divide between brown and green energy, and in brown they put LNG as well as oil. They put probably coal. Nuclear would be you know, and they're looking at 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 redirecting um, investment toward green energy. That all makes sense, but if you see that spread, then what you'll see is this is the field of donor of loans to traditional energy sectors narrowing and it will be just the US and just the Gulf. And then we aren't really the prime we're we're kind of small potatoes in there. So we're looking at the Gulf. And then um Russia and China are in there. And as the Gulf is seeing lower oil prices and their budgets are restricted, they'll be doing less investment. So then it's Russia and China. Russia's not going to have the, the finances to do a lot of it either. They're more interested in locking down concession rights to existing fines. So now you have China, and China will be the only place willing to loan to the oil sector or to the gas sector. And what does that mean for us from a national security perspective if they control the reins to um, traditional energy resources? So that keeps me up. Um, I worry about 5G because I don't think our partners and allies are taking it seriously enough. The fact that this is just a multi-billion dollar collection platform that China created with the sole purpose of collecting and never intended to be competitive. So um, there's no way we can do something, we can build something that would compete with it using the private sector because it's never going to be uh, cost effective for them. And it's never going to bring in the returns that they would need. That's not what China was going for, um, and they've achieved it. But we've still got like 10 years to to look at this before it's a full rollout. 
Um, a guy named David Bray, who is uh, working with me at the Atlanta Council, who is the head of our new geotech center, I think is brilliant on this stuff. And he mentioned that we actually do have a chance to dent 5G a bit because we, we, if we get satellites up into space right now, enough of them from satellites, we can actually shut down spans of 5G. You know, you're not going to take the whole system out and you wouldn't necessarily want to. I mean, it's not that it's evil all across the board, but it could give you the the tool to shut it down in places if you needed to if we found that china was using it for evil um that means putting up space elevators the gulf was a perfect place to do that so we've got 10 years but somebody needs to get on it and right now nobody's on it the other two things that worry me are the pivot to asia i fully agree that china is a long-term strategic challenge and it's worth resources it's worth brain power but if we ignore threats out of the middle east or Africa, for instance, it doesn't make them go away. You know, if we let our guard down, we'll get punched in the grill. We ignore the regions at our peril. Um, I would say the last thing that worries me, or that keeps me up at night, I'm, I'm both worried and hopeful, is this new leadership emerging across the region that is young and inexperienced. I think they bring a lot of new ideas, fresh thinking, fresh faces. They're better connected to that youth bulge that I mentioned, but they're untested. Um, and we're used to dealing with that cadre of wise, and or seasoned heads of state, maybe not always wise, in the region. And so this is new terrain for the U.S. I mean, we haven't been here in decades having to, like, train up new decision makers and, and navigate our relationships with them. So how much do we lead them? How much do we let them forge their own way and make mistakes and pick themselves up? How tightly is it safe to partner with them? Um, I mean, I'm sure Europe is probably still saying that about us, too. So <laughs> uh, anyway, th those are my nightmares. So, Kirsten, I, I completely agree with your assessment about the younger leaders in the Middle East. I still remain optimistic, given there have been some some uh, hiccups. I, I am optimistic about the Middle East, and I too worry about a pivot. Understand, we have to contend with China. China's operating in Africa. They're going to fill vacuums in places like the Middle East. So. You know, we're a superpower. We're going to have to balance all of our requirements worldwide, we being, of course, the United States. So thank you very much for all your analysis. I, I just want to ask one final question. Is there anything that you wanted to add that we didn't talk about today? I think we covered the waterfront, to be sure, on the Middle East. So is there anything else you want to add? No, I think we I think we really did. I think we covered a lot of it. I mean, the, you know. We could nerd out about this for hours, you and I, no question. <laughs> That's right. Well, so it was fascinating. I want to thank you for calling in today and doing a spycast with, with us. Thank you for sharing your, show, your, your thoughts and your insights, and thank you for your service at the National Security Council and elsewhere. Uh, we'll continue to rely on you. The community will. Uh, for your expertise, and frankly, we're the International Spy Museum, and you are connected to many, many of our foreign partners. So thank you for all your service. Thanks for what you do. We'll continue to call you from time to time so you can share your expertise with us. Thank you very much, Kirsten. Stay healthy. Please do. It was a pleasure and an honor, Chris. Thanks very much. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit. If you want to donate to the museum or if you're local and want to volunteer at the museum, please visit our website at spymuseum.org for more information.